it's Katie and Amy, and we're back with another episode of As Crime Goes By. Uh, this time we're doing Couples, Couples Who Kill. Kill. Oh, instant collection. I know, cute. Um, I'm going to be doing the Moore's Murders, and Amy? I'll be doing the Philpots. Right, so, Moore's Murders. Yes. Um, I'll give you all a heads up that Amy and I have been extensive in our research, particularly Amy, on this episode. Yeah, it's going to be a long one. Strap yourselves in. Aye. I did a lot of research for this and my hand hurt after it, so... Aye. I feel that. By the end of it, I just want to stop researching. I'm like, like, I was like, Um, So, I hope you're into a nice long episode. (laughs) So, I'll start with the Moore's Murderers, which I'm sure you've all heard plenty about, but we can all bear to hear more, can't we? Right, so... We've got uh, to have some famous ones, otherwise we'd never get listens. No, we've primarily been only doing famous ones this far, <laughs> for the most part. But We're trying really hard. Actually, to be fair, you're... What, Pillpots? Philpots? The Philpots. Phil, I don't... That is pretty famous. Not You'll me. know it when, I, when I, I tell you. I think every time you do something, I'm like, halfway yeah, through, halfway oh, I've through. heard of this one. <laughs> halfway through, it's like, oh, no, yeah. Yeah, I know this Remember Deadly actually. Women? <laughs> I was about to say, is there a woman in this? Obviously, it's a <laughs> not to... uh, No, hang well, on. I was, not a, I was about to say, but like, how many gay couples who kill have we heard of? Yeah, not not loads. <laughs> not any. Because <laughs> we get all of our material from deadly women. <laughs> Actually, I, I've done the most murders, but I know them because they're just famous. They are just famous. Are just especially famous. If, if you're from the UK, you've heard of them. Yeah, right? and especially if you're from Manchester, where I'm from. Yeah. You've definitely heard of them. So, Ian and Myra, mm-hmm. lovely couple. Oh, yeah. She'll tell you some information about them. So, Ian, I'll start off with a bit of background on each of them. Um, so, Ian Brady was born in Glasgow, a Scottish chap, on the mm. 2nd of January in 1938. And he was born as Ian Duncan Stewart when he was just a few months old. Just changed it to Brady to be more catchy? or <laughs> He actually changed his name three times. Oh, wow. Or twice, actually. But he has three surnames. So just you buckle in. I've got it all written down here. Just you wait. So, He's an arsehole regardless. So I well, that's the thing that made him an arsehole. The name changes. <laughs> Couldn't decide. <laughs> Fucking Ian. Classic Ian. So when he was don't make it sound like you're his pal. Like <laughs> just classic Ian changing his name, classic. killing kids. Loves the murder. Just classic Ian. <laughs> Honestly, loves a bit of na- Nazi propaganda. Does Ian? <laughs> What a smashing blow. He is. Honestly, my dream man. <laughs> what a shame he's dead. <laughs> yeah, we were all crying into our cornflakes on that one. Right, if I can start. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> when Brady was just a few months old, his mum gave him up to a local couple, Mary and John Sloan, as she couldn't support him. Um, when the Sloans adopted him, essentially, um, he became Ian Sloan, name change number one. Oh, there we go. So... It's been reported during his childhood that he would like to torture animals. Solid chap. <laughs> Not a shocker. Um, in high school, he was a troublemaker and he left at the age of 15 and got a job as a tea boy at a shipyard. Aim and high. Good for... At the age of 15. Like, yeah, but back in the day, you could do anything back in really, day. couldn't you? You could be an engineer at the age of 15, <laughs> back in the day. <laughs> Sent you down the mine. What year would that have been? 53? Yeah, quick, quick maths on my part. Well done, me. Uh, that was pretty good, actually. Because I was like, "Yeah, sure." Uh, it's only I'm looking at the numbers, <laughs> calculating in my brain here. Um, so he started dating a young woman called Evelyn Grant 
But the relationship ended when Brady threatened her with a knife after she went to a dance with another guy. Mm. Now, I don't mean to Tends defend... Tends to turn you off. I don't mean to defend Brady, but don't be doing that if you're going out with someone. No, no, <laughs> absolutely. Do you, do you, Evelyn. Maybe you could tell he was a fucking psychopath. Oh, I was, I was defending Ian there, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> but don't threaten with knives, ever. I'm totally as, team Evelyn in this one. A, yeah, okay, I should probably change my <laughs> <laughs> At the age of 17... He was placed on probation for breaking and entering and sent to live with his mother, who now lived in Manchester. So he relocated to England. She'd married a man called Patrick Brady. No, no. I see what you're doing there. Um, whose name Ian took, and finally he became Ian Brady. So they finally were on the first page of notes. <laughs> <laughs> Within a year of living in Manchester, Brady was caught with a sack of stolen lead seals, and he was sent to Strangeway Prison for three months. Uh, and then after that, he was sent to two years in a borstal. Mm. He was moved around three borstals because of his bad behaviour, but he was eventually released in 1957. Two years after his release, he got a job at Millwood's, a chemical distribution industry. Interesting. I don't really know what that does anyway. At some point in his youth... <laughs> oh, it's quite <laughs> ambiguous, isn't it? <laughs> I just deal with chemicals and that. I, I don't know what that means <laughs> properly. But at some point in his youth, that wasn't made clear in the things that I read, um, he, beca- he began an obsession with Hitler and Nazis, and he taught himself German and loved to read Mein Kampf. Mein Kampf? Mein Kampf. Mein Kampf. Mm. See, I'm that Hitler's not, autobiography. I'm that not into it that I don't even know how to pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike Amy. Just saying. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, slightly less information on Myra. She was less interesting in her youth prior, mm. prior to him. She was born in Manchester. You mean she didn't change her name three times. No, and no, that was most of his Lived story. Lived a shell really, life. <laughs> Boring old Myra she was, wasn't she? Just always a Hindley, never a Brady. Uh, no matter how much she wanted to be. <laughs> um, she was born in Manchester on the twenty third of July in nineteen forty two. She was a little bit younger than uh, old Ian. Her dad was an alcoholic, and both her parents beat her. A year after, um, her sister. Oh no, I've not read that sentence completely wrong. A year, a year, a year. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) A year after her sister Maureen was born, when Hindley was five years old, she was sent to live with her grandmother. Hindley's father would reward her for being violent with other children and punish her if she didn't stand up for herself. Which oh, wasn't he a boxer? Yeah, I think she did some boxing. Aye, but he was because he was a boxer, yeah. He was basically an arsehole from what I read, yeah. but I summarised it with that sentence there. Okay. <laughs> because I was already getting tired of writing a page on Ian. <laughs> um, in 1961, at the age of 18, Hindley got a job as a typist at Millwoods. Oh, mm. I can see where it mm-hmm. might start to be happening. And this is where she met Ian Brady. And I have to just make a point of who the fuck was interviewing people at this company. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, these seem like well-adjusted normal you, people who I, are definitely wanting my employee. You've just not hired two good eggs there. <laughs> <laughs> and then maybe in a large company, maybe it's a large company, you might get two bad eggs. But I mean, you've got some pretty fucking... Some pretty fucking rotten eggs Yeah, Going on the egg theme. <laughs> we like about as rotten as they can get. <laughs> so, whilst she was at work, Hindley was infatuated by Brady, but it took her six months to approach him. It was another five or six months... <laughs> it 
It was another five or six months before Brady asked her on a date, so he was playing hard to fucking get uh, with her. She clearly didn't make too much no, of No, he clearly was not, like, inf- instantly just like, ooh, ooh, come at me. Um, so their first date was to watch The Judgment of at Nuremberg. Fucking hell, that's, fla- that's a that's, fucking red flag, isn't it? Romance like, at its peak, if you ask me. <laughs> do you know what? I just love watching the Nuremberg trials. <laughs> what I do. Just of a Saturday evening. Of an evening. <laughs> no, we <laughs> like to record a podcast on Saturday <laughs> evening to go wild. <laughs> um, so their dates typically consisted of watching X-rated films and drinking German wine to feel more... German? Hitlery. Just off the time. Not this yeah. day and age. I mean, but, it wasn't too much after the war, really. Well, no, because it was like, what? Oh, I can't do maths. She was born in 52 and at the age of 18. Oh, 61. 61. Yeah, so it's only a couple, like, couple of decades after. Aye, so still too soon. It's always too soon, even it's now. too soon, yeah. Well, I ain't going to fucking watch the Nuremberg Trials now. Like, do you know uh, what I mean? Not on a first date for the very, like... Yeah, I know. Could you imagine least. that? Oh, babe, <laughs> want to come around mine <laughs> and watch the uh, Nuremberg Trials with this? <laughs> what was your first date with your current boyfriend? Was it the Judgment of Nuremberg? <laughs> <laughs> No, we went to the aquarium. Oh, <laughs> you actually. On their lunch breaks, they would read each other tales of Nazi atrocities. Um, which, by the way, who? Bitch, ima- by the way. <laughs> imagine being at the next table of them at lunchtime and just being like, "I'd like to think they went what? somewhere private to do that." Like, I bet surely. they were. They were probably in they the were kicking about in the canteen. Aye, like... they're all in the canteen eating the fucking spaghetti bolognese or whatever. Mm. And just nineteen forty three, Rudolf Hess signed off on. <laughs> just why do you know? What is I've got a history degree. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I think you read yourself some Nazi atrocities of an evening. I know, I lied. That was actually my first date. Me, Greg, Nuremberg trials. <laughs> How romantic. I know. <laughs> no wonder it's become such a solid relationship. <laughs> that sounded so sarcastic and I didn't mean it. <laughs> Greg, you sound lovely. Um, he listens to this, so... Hi, Greg. <laughs> He has to listen to this one now. <laughs> a shout out. So, um, Hindley and Brady, being the awesome couple that they are, they would often plan bank robberies, um, which never really came to anything, much like many of our plans. Yeah. Uh, but Did we you just compare us to Hindley and Brady? <laughs> Fuck me. That's painful. That's hey, a sad indictment to our lives. One of our plans has come to something. This. Yeah. We're actually, we're on episode five. Bank heist number five for them. <laughs> So, as a couple, they had an interest in photography, and Brady often f- photographed Hindley with her dog puppet. I always liked that little fact. I didn't know that about her until this. Um, and they both liked taking explicit photos of each other. I mean, what what young I couple mean, doesn't? To be fair, aye, you know, everyone's had a bit of a nude swap, so aye. we'll not judge on that. I think Amy's had something very recently. Um, oh, I wish. <laughs> Part of the furniture now. No nude photos for Amy. (laughs) So Brady moved in with Hindley and her grandmother in June of uh, 1963, one month before the first murder. On the 12th of July, 1963, with a plan to commit the the perfect murder, at about 7.30pm, Hindley abducted her sister Maureen's schoolmate, Pauline Reed. Hindley offered her a lift to the school dance, but took her on a detour to Saddleworth Moor to search for a missing glove. Brady arrived once they were at the moor, claiming to be helping with the search. Hind- what fucking glove? I know. How expensive <laughs> was this glove? Like Versace. <laughs> Gotta get I that found. I wanted to be diamond encrusted. <laughs> Had 
Michael Jackson moonwalking I mean, Grabby's crotch with it for that. I'm not going to lie. Spoiler alert. They use this glove a lot. <laughs> right. And I'm not going to lie. I feel like I wouldn't be going out to a moor to be looking for... I'm like, I have, like, Pauline. I'm, like, I'm not being funny. The moors are pretty fucking big, right? And you've had lost one glove. Hey, we're not going to... F- and I'm not being funny, right? And I don't mean to, to judge Pauline. You're on your way to your dance. Just go to your dance, so, Pauline. She's probably just being polite. I know, and be she like, is. All right, she's just being we'll nice. We'll find your glove. It's not like me, me dates waiting on me or out. That's fine. We'll find your glove. So Aww, the wee head. <laughs> I know, right? So Hindley waited in the van whilst Brady and Pauline went on the search. And again, it's her glove. Yeah, I know. I'd be like, eh, Why is Pauline on the way to a dance? Bitch. Aye. I've come out all the way <laughs> to Saddleworth Moor for this. I'm dressed up to the nines. <laughs> Get out your fucking car. Oh. But again, probably being polite, she sounds like a lovely young lady. Because yeah. I certainly would not be at the moor. No, I wouldn't have been at the moor. I'd have been like, fuck off, I'll get a taxi. Although, I have to say, how many times have we been in awkward situations when you're just like, okay, I'll do that. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, half an hour later, Brady returned and took Hindley to where Pauline was laying dying on the moor. She was almost decapitated, with two cuts to the throat, one of which was to her voice box. Uh, a throat... A throat chain and her coat collar had been pushed into the wound. Brady told Hindley that he had sexually abused Pauline and then proceeded to bury her. Mm, that's the kind of fella you want to fucking be with. I know, right? This is apparently the perfect murder. So, David Smith, who is Hindley's soon-to-be brother-in-law, so engaged to Maureen, mm. uh, was an... Oh, no, sorry. I don't think he was engaged at this point. Was He, um, he was initially questioned about Pauline's murder as they'd been pre- as they previously dated and earlier the day earlier on the day sorry that Pauline had been murdered they'd been seen together but he was cleared of any involvement in her death or disappearance mm. I should say because they didn't know she was dead at that point on the 23rd of November in 1963 at a market in Ashton underline Hindley and Brady offered a lift to a 12 year old John Kilbride they promised him a bottle of sherry and then lured him on a hunt for a missing glove Back at the saddle with more. Hindley again waited in the car whilst Brady and John went to look for the glove. Brady sexually abused him, slit his throat and strangled him with a shoelace. Jesus. I know. On the 16th of June, 1964, two days, no, two days and a month before my mum was born. Aww. Shout out to Mandy. Hey, Mandy. Uh, Hindley asked 12-year-old Keith Bennett to help her with getting boxes into her car that offered him a lift home. Brady was back in the sorry. Brady was in the back of the van again. Keith was lured to the moor with a search for the missing glove. Mm-hmm. This is a damn hard glove to find. Mm-hmm. All I'm saying. Again, Brady and Keith went into the moor for half an hour, and Brady came back alone. He told Hindley that he had sexually assaulted Keith and strangled him with a string. Wait, why does he just keeps coming back after half an hour saying <laughs> oh, I sexually assaulted them and strangled them with a shoelace and probably slit their throat as well? Like. Fuck off, Ian. You fucking weirdo. He's, he's got a fast turnaround. And fuck you, Myra, as well, because you're just like, okay, babe, that's Hi. fine. She's just always sat in the car. Just yeah, who's sat in the car waiting for him to sexually assault someone within you know, half an hour? I would love to know them. what is she doing in that car for half an hour every time? Like, yeah, I know. Because she can't be sat on her phone, can she? It's nah. 1960. So just sat there, just staring into the darkness, waiting for him to come back. With the same tale he's already told like, twice before. Sexually abused, strangled, and. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> that was it. Had a wild time Still, without your mother. That is a wild half hour as they go. Yeah. Uh, Keith's stepdad was questioned on four occasions over a two-year period in relation to his, in, in relation to the disappearance of Keith. 
On Boxing Day in 1964, Hindley dropped her grandmother at a relative's and refused to let her return the next day. Until the next day, sorry. Later, on Boxing Day, Brady and Hindley lured 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey uh, from a fairground to their home where they undressed her, gagged her and forced her to pose for photos before they raped and killed her. The next day, they buried her at the moor. Almost a year later, on the 6th of October, 1965, Brady and Hindley lured... Uh, sorry, lured... <laughs> lured. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they were probably doing that on a so... Knowing then. <laughs> Almost a year later, on the 6th of October, 1965, Brady and Hindley lured 17-year-old Edward Evans from... 17? Bit old for them. Aye. It was... And do you know what? A lot of mistakes are made for mm. them in this one. Um, yeah, so they, they lured him away from a rail station to their home to drink a bottle of wine. And I have to question, what was said to get him there? Because I'm not being funny, I've been at a lot of train stations. <laughs> and if some random came up to me and was like... This is my boyfriend, do you want to come drink a bottle of wine I, with us? I'd be like, perhaps not. No, I'm alright, thanks, I, Myra. I'll get on my train, actually, <laughs> instead. At some point... <laughs> well, well, well thoroughly researched. <laughs> <laughs> um, at some point during the drinking of the wine, Brady sent Hindley to get her brother-in-law David Smith, who Brady has grown fond of. Once he arrived, David was left to wait in the kitchen, and he could hear screaming and a scuffle before Hindley called for help. When he entered the living room, he found Brady standing over Edward, who was screaming, whilst Bra- Brady held a hatchet in his hand, which he struck Edward with in the head. Brady then strangled him with an electrical cord. The next morning, David Smith reported the murder to the police, and when the police came to search the house, they found Edward's body in the spare room and arrested Brady on suspicion of murder. Suspicion. Suspicion, yeah. <laughs> it's a bit suspicious when you I tend mean, to have a brutally he's gonna have murdered body in your Strangulation marks. He's going to have a hatchet wound to the head. <laughs> suspicion. <laughs> yeah accident that was wasn't it i don't know who put him there honestly i don't know how it happened must have staggered in <laughs> me and my red had an early night he was just lying there <laughs> wounded never met him before mental <laughs> four days later hindley was charged as an accessory to the murder upon a search of their home and the discovery of their luggage left at a rail station presumably the one where they'd picked up edward from Police found an exercise book belonging to John Kilbride, nine pornographic photos of Leslie Ann Downey, and thirteen and a thirteen minute tape of her screaming and pleading for help. Um, they made her mum listen to that and um, Jesus and like say, is that your daughter or not? Like horrific. The first body found at the moor was that of Leslie Ann Downey's, quickly followed by John Kilbride's body as well. Brady was charged with the murders of John and Leslie and Edward, whilst Hindley was charged with the murders of Leslie and Edward, but not of John. Mm-hmm. Despite both Brady and Hindley entering pleas of not guilty, the jury found them guilty on all charges after deliber- deliberating for only two hours. About 20 years later, in 1985, Brady admitted to also murder- murdering Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett. In 1986, so one year later, Hindley was taken to the moor to, ass- to assist with a search for the two remaining bodies, but nothing came of it. In February of 1987, Hindley finally confessed to her involvement in all five murders. A month later, Hindley returned to the moor, as did Brady sometime later, but both searches came to nothing. 
Pauline's body was found on the 1st of July in 1987. Despite many searches, Keith Bennett's body has never been found. In 2005, Brady wrote a letter to Keith's mum, saying that he could lead the police to the site of the grave, but that authorities would not him would not allow him to do it. Hindler... Uh, Hindler? <laughs> <coughs> Freudian slip. <laughs> Hindley died in prison in 2002. And Brady, after attempting years worth of hunger strikes... Um, he was fitted with feeding tubes to prevent his death, but eventually he died of restrictive pulmonary disease in 2017, two years ago. Wow. And that's the Moore's murderers. That's it. Mm-hmm. Amy doesn't have much to say. We all know the story. Oh, yeah. It's nice. And we do, don't we? Nice to be Bloody retold. Horrible. It is fucking horrible, isn't it? Mm. And there's things that I just never know. It's one of those ones that I'm like, oh, I've heard of the Moore's murderers, but I've not actually looked into the Moors murderers. Yeah. Um so doing the research was harrowing, isn't it? Harrowing, interesting and just fucking mental. I think it's because it's kids. It's always when it's kids. Yeah. Aye, it's always just that bit more fucked up. Yeah. And obviously it's still horrific when it's an adult but Yeah. It's I mean children just really can't I mean like it's themselves. sad when it's Edward Evans who's seventeen and that's really sad. But Aye. like a ten year old girl and Aye. doing that to her. Just, fucking hell. just disgusting. Right, on that pleasant note. Yeah, so <laughs> that was a delight. <laughs> on to more murderers. Yay! <laughs> so, we'll begin with mine. The Philpots. Mick and Maraid. So, um, Mick, well, Michael Mick Philpot was born in 1956 and not much is recorded about his upbringing and youth. So, the first time we actually really can establish much about him is when he reaches the age of 19. He begins a relationship with a 15-year-old girl called Kim Hill. Now, you'll notice she's younger than him. This is a continuing theme. Hmm. Keep an eye. <laughs> Kim was the daughter of an army officer, and at the time Philpot was serving in the army, this is how the pair met. The relationship was effectively doomed from the outset, according to me. But I'd bring a bit of uh, drama to the proceedings. Um, but this was due to Philpot's controlling, paranoid, and violent personality. So there's an account of the couple being in the pub, like being in a pub, like a local pub, and Philpot wanted Hill to uh, play pool with him. Hill refused because she was having a conversation with her cousin, and Philpot reacted to this um, rebuttal violently and got the thick end of the pool cue and smacked his 16 year old girlfriend across the face with it. Okay. Um, wow. And. Kim Hill herself testifies that not one bloke who was in the pub defended her or said anything well, to Philpot. Well, that's fucking disgusting, isn't it? I know. I was like, <laughs> what men? Um, but so it's believed that these sorts of episodes where he wasn't held accountable for his violent actions were actually part of events that led to him to go on to murder six of his own children years later, like oh, nice. 35 years later. Yeah. Flush. We'll get on to that. It's 10 pages of this, so stick with me. <laughs> Um, Philpot was also known to use weapons on his then 16-year-old girlfriend as well. So, upon one occasion, he smashed her kneecap with a lump hammer. Fucking hell. Yeah. Um, unsurprisingly, Kim eventually wrote Philpot a letter ending the relationship. Because, (laughs) why would you want to be in that relationship? Um, and he took it extremely badly and he told her, and I quote, If I can't have you, no fuckers having you. Um, so he took this statement extremely seriously 
as it turned out. And he actually did then attempt to murder Kim um, on July the 4th, 1978. So he waited until her father had gone out to work, who his dad, their dad worked the night shift, and he broke into her house, crept into her room, and stabbed her over a dozen times, puncturing every single vital organ. Fuck. Then her mother tried to intervene, and he stabbed her 11 times, mostly in the back. Um, so Philpot's chilling lack of remorse is shown here in this scenario 35 years before he's actually killed his family uh, when an ambulance arrives he's just sat on the stairs and he tells the paramedics I wouldn't bother she's a goner I've done a good job on her he's fucking sick yeah so I mean like as far as remorse goes lacking it's not his not his forte nah Um. I mean, fortunately, both Kim and her mom survived. Uh, so that was like a bit of a happy ending, I suppose. At least they got through it. How was he not um, sent away for life after that? Well, he's found guilty of attempted murder and he's sentenced to serve seven and a half years. But, shockingly, he's actually released after three years and two months. I mean, seven and a half years was pathetic enough. But that's ridiculous. For, like, attempted murder, he's punctured I, every vital organ. He died two times on the way to hospital. See, attempted murder should be charged the same as murder. Yeah, because you've, you've gone there with the intent, I, you? You've just failed. Yeah. But that doesn't make it you're any better. You're just a loser. doesn't I, mean you're not a dangerous loser. That's insane. Um. So, after he's released from prison, he entered a relationship with a woman called Pamela Lomax. Together, they had three children, but obviously the relationship didn't last because at the age of 37... Philpot then met 14-year-old Heather Keogh and left Pamela for her. She's 37, she's 14. I'll, I'll oh. leave you to do the maths. Ooh. Yeah. So Heather admitted Ooh. that their relationship became sexual a year after they met, meaning she still would have been only 15 at the time. Oh. So essentially is now also a statutory rapist. And On an attempted top. murderer before he's actually become a murderer. So it's not... He's not a sound guy, is he? Yeah, it's not what you want. Uh, Philpot's penchant for only dating much younger girls is another mark of his controlling character. He only goes... So he only goes with young, vulnerable and naive girls who he can manipulate. And that's clear throughout his entire life. Like, he starts off with Kim, he goes to this Heather, who he savagely used to beat, but I'll go on to that. Um, so... <laughs> Heather moved in with Philpot when she was 16, but it didn't last long. Um, so Philpot would habitually abuse her and would encourage the two boys that they had together. So he also got her up the duff at the age of 16 when he was still, you know, 37. That's so fucking gross. I know. And he would, so he would encourage these two sons to also abuse their mum. Oh, sexually? No, 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 just violently. I mean, even so, but it's a little bit better. What I was thinking. Still disgusting. I no, yeah, but mm. like you're encouraging like a fucking four year old to like punch their mum in your oh, kneecap. That's fucking that's awful. I mean. That is fucking awful. Um. So in early two thousand, Mick attacked Heather and locked her out of the house. She took this as the opportunity to leave him. After this, she won custody of the children despite his best efforts to discredit and shame her. It was only a few months after this had all happened that he began a sexual relationship with 19-year-old Mairead Duffy. She becomes quite the key character. I gathered that from you saying Mairead earlier. It stands yeah. out as the name. I know, right? <laughs> um, I don't want to give too much away, but... but um, So, who would later go on to marry Philpot? Is what I've got no. here in the notes. No. 
Um, so when they met, Maraid was a single mother who had just come out of an abusive relationship. So again, vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, when she moved into Philpott's council house at 18 Victory Road. By all accounts, Maraid was absolutely devoted to Mick, herself referring to him as her knight in shining armour. You'll see why that's a lie later on. Um, I mean, I can already imagine why. Yeah. Um, I know, he's not got a great track record. No, he doesn't sound nice in any way. He's nice. Um, but Maraid's devotion didn't keep Philpott's attention for long, and in 2001, he met 17-year-old single mother, Lisa Willis, who was also an orphan. How does he get so many women? Because they're all fucking children. Yeah. Who, like, don't have a supportive, like, parental... Right, and they're just like, oh my god, a man's interested in me. Woo. Yeah, and also I've got a fucking Ben, and I'm 17, and, oh look, he's 39, so yeah, why not go in? Not yet, I think he's 39 at this point. <laughs> so he was 37 when he met Heather. Oh, okay. And then a few months after that, yeah, okay. so... Okay, I'm with you. Um, so he met her, Lisa, and invited her to come and live with him and Maraid Ew. as his mistress. Oh! Mm-hmm, yeah. I mean, imagine being in that household. I know, I know. So I've said here... It's a testament to how submissive Maraid was that she remained with Philpot throughout this, and indeed when Maraid and Mick got married in 2002, Lisa was the bridesmaid at the wedding. She was even pregnant with Philpot's child at the time. Um, it's likely that both women were so submissive to Philpot um, because they were scared of him. So, just like in his previous relationships, Mick used violence to control both women. Lisa testified at the beginning of their relationship, Mick beat her with a piece of wood in front of her son. And in 2010, so two years before he went on to commit the murder of his six children, he received a police caution for hitting Maraid and dragging her outside by the hair. That's a nine shining armour. That guy. He sounds lovely. Yeah, no, fine and a fucking unicorn. Um... (laughs) Fictional, just like him being a knight in shining armour. So, whilst also abusing the two women, he also repeatedly kept impregnating them, and he did this in an attempt to force the council to give him a bigger house, basically. So We've one... all met a few people like that in our time, Fucking <laughs> <laughs> speak for yourself. I've not. <coughs> I've met a few people like that in my time. <laughs> So at one point, there were 11 children and three adults sharing the three-bedroom house. So in spite of the overcrowding, Derby Council, because he's from Derby, so Derby Council refused to rehouse Mick, who was unemployed and living solely off benefits and Maraid and Lisa's incomes, because they both had to work, but he didn't. So they're endlessly pregnant. Working non-stop, probably doing all the cleaning oh, doing and all cooking the housework and, and, and actually aye. looking after the 11 children that they've got in the house. Meanwhile, he just fucks them and abuses them and does fuck all else. And sits watching the deli and goes fishing. What a knight in shining armour. I wish I could be so lucky. I know, right? So, um, and in response to the fact that Derby Council wouldn't give him a bigger house, he's recorded as saying, fuck them, I'll just have some more babies. Good plan. Yeah, in an attempt to just overcrowd that little three-bedroom house even more. So unsurprisingly, (laughs) Lisa eventually got bored with being an add-on extra who was solely there to produce a baby each year. And so in February 2012, she told Maraid she was taking her five children swimming, but instead took them and moved in with her sister and never returned to Victory Road. So she had five of the children? Five out of the eleven. Five were six were Maraids. Jesus Christ, man. 
It's a lot of children. I know. Well, he just kept... Popping them out. Fucking stuffing it up there, didn't he? So oh, romantic image. I know. Well, he was into, like, dogging and everything. And it all came out in court. But, Honestly, um, I was thinking doggy style, and I was like... No, like... What man isn't? <laughs> what man isn't it? Just getting in a car, having strangers, watching shag. Yeah. All about that life. Um, anyway... <laughs> I'm allowed to continue. Nah. <laughs> oh, let's finish up here. <laughs> Perfect ending. <laughs> it was this that is believed to have been the catalyst. So her moving out and taking the five children. Uh-huh. It's believed that that was the catalyst that led to Philpot setting his house on fire. So Mick began discrediting Lisa in order to try and get his kids back. He told friends and neighbours that Lisa had called him and had threatened to firebomb the house. Yeah, I know. Setting up his alibi already. <laughs> Definitely doesn't seem premeditated to me. No, not at all. Um, where are you getting that idea from? I don't know. It was only shortly after this that his house went up in flames. Hmm. Mick was always very confident that the kids would be returning home to him in spite of the fact he had a criminal record and had already lost one custody battle against Heather years earlier. Therefore, some friends and neighbours were already suspicious of Mick's motives before the fire had even taken place. The arson and murder itself happened in the early hours of May 11th, 2012, which just so happened to also be the day that Mick and Lisa were due to see each other in court. So he wasn't particularly clever about the time timings of the crime. No. Um, so Mick had failed to take into account how rapidly the fire would spread and how much smoke would be produced, especially since he had varnished all the wood in the hallway with boat varnish. And he just was like... <laughs> That won't catch fire. You said that in such a way like everyone's going to know that. Oh, boat varnish. That's so fire ing. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, once he'd set fire, once he'd set the fire, he quickly realised how much he had miscalculated the severity of the blaze. And this can be heard in his 999 call to the emergency services where he began calm. And yet, as the call goes on, he became more and more panicked. It had been part of his plan that he would climb a ladder he had placed at the back of the house. So, remember, this isn't planned at all. Definitely wasn't a ladder there placed to make him look like a hero. No, no, it was all spontaneous because it was just Lisa who'd firebombed his house at three o'clock in the morning um, to save his six children. And that we're still in the house. Uh-huh. So he set this fire, full well known there were six kids upstairs. And he was just like, you know, yeah, that's fine. Because I'll save them and I'll look like a hero. But he's so fucking dumb, he doesn't realise that fire can spread rapidly. So it did. Um, so, so it's all gone a bit out of hand. Yeah. Pretty much. So, I mean, he was there, he had the ladder to try and save the kids, but unfortunately this was made impossible by the severity of the blaze and the children could not be reached until the fire brigade turned up, by which time it was too late. So five of the children were pronounced dead at the scene. Fuck. Jade, John, Jesse, Jack and Jaden. They liked a Jay, didn't they, in that family? Yeah, I think it was done on purpose. I don't know. Well, Lisa's kids all Jays. Do you not know? Oh, I don't know. They they don't. They've had their names retracted for legal oh, reasons. Because it would have been a good way to differentiate the mother. Mm. And two days later, Dwayne, who was not a Jay, oh. Dean, um, <laughs> the eldest of the children was also confirmed to have died. Uh, they oh, all died yeah. of smoke inhalation. 
So the Philpots denied any involvement in the crime, but those around them found their behaviour suspicious. Upon one visit to the hospital to visit his dying son, Philpot grabbed a woman on the bum and said to oh. his friend, this is what I like. Nice. There's it in your dying kid in hospital and that's what you've got on your mind. His head's in the right place. Yeah. Together man. <laughs> yep. <laughs> The pair also insisted on doing a press conference in which they stated how grateful they were to friends, family and emergency services, but never once appealed to the public for information on who could have committed the crime. Always a bit of a... Always a bit of a red flag. Aye, give away. Um, there were also traces of petrol, which was used to start the fire, found on both of their clothes. So all of this led the police to begin um, recording the Philpott's conversations um, in which they heard Mick say and incriminating things such as, are you still sticking with the story to Marade? And I'll blab if you want me to. So still using that manipulate and control thing as well, mm-hmm. which is Aye. pretty characteristic of this arsehole. And men like that in general. Yeah. So, I mean, once police had these recordings, they charged the couple and they were both found guilty of manslaughter. Not murder. But Mick was sentenced to life in prison and Marade got given 17 years. They both remain in prison to this day and are now divorced. So, shockingly, that relationship didn't last. Mm, who would have thunk it? Oh. Um, Mick has the chance to appeal for parole after 15 years and Maraid after seven and a half. Well, that's like now. But there's no... Is that not like now? Oh, it's what, 2012? 2012. That's like now. So... She could be yeah. out. But she's not. Well, she might be out next week. Well, I mean, she could be, but... That's mental. At which point our podcast will actually be out of date, so great. I genuinely don't think I've ever heard that story before. And it was quite recent. That was really recent. The year we met, 2012. Oh my god. Yeah. Uh, We're going to end this just now. Um, We're going to record the next episode in a few minutes. um, And that's going to be on. Yeah. And that is going to (laughs) be on. That's going to be on Mass Murderers. Mass Murderers. So I'm doing Richard Speck and Amy is doing... I'm doing Elliot Roger. Cool. So we'll see you in two weeks. We're going to record it in two minutes. Um, You know, catch you then. Bye. See you next time. Bye. Bye.